0: I just wanted to do this. I had somebody the other day say, wow, this was the year of rabbit trails, Bob, and I felt like there was a little bit of a slight in how that was said to me, just a little bit of a put down, like uh, I'm not sure what was meant by that, but you guys know I love rabbit trails and... and, and um I come. It's from a biblical precedent. That's why I do that. It's not just because I want to do rabbit trails. It's because it's biblical to do rabbit trails. So if you don't like me doing rabbit trails, you need to take that up with God. Okay? Thank you. Because we're going to look at one. We're going to look at Paul's rabbit trail in Ephesians chapter three. All right. And and this is uh, as Paul in Ephesians one and two has laid out this grand sweep of salvation and what God is doing. And then he's going to immediately begin to go and talk about how much he's praying for the Ephesians, that they will come to know God better, and it, God will be with them in their struggles and their suffering and all this stuff. And, and uh, if you look on your sheet, we're going to read this, to, I'm going to read this. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, and then he stops. And he goes, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation as I have already written briefly. In reading this then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations as it is now, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things, His intent was that now through the church, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, which he has accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through him, in him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. And then in the very next verse, he continues the statement that he made in, in, in uh, verse 1 that he started and that he interrupted. And so he breaks this off in the middle of a thought. He thinks all of a sudden, I need to make sure they understand this before I actually go into what I'm going to go into. And so it's like a rabbit trail. Paul takes a little, little bit of a, of a diversion there, and, uh, and he, he, he comes, comes with some incredible information that I think we need to look at. First thing I want you to see is he's going to talk about God's mystery, the gospel of grace. He uses the word mystery multiple times through this passage. He keeps talking about it. In verse 2 and 3, he says, "'Surely you have heard about the administration "'of God's grace that was given to me for you, "'that is, the mystery made known to me by revelation.'" as I have already written briefly. He's already been talking about it, but he's saying, I want you to understand this. I want you to understand what we're talking about. And there's a word here that we have to address. It's this word mystery. Because I kind of like mysteries. Sometimes I've, in the past, enjoyed some of the BBC uh, programs where they, where they have different, different uh, um, mystery programs that are interesting. And that's what we tend to think of when we think of mystery. We tend to think of it as something hidden that is your job to discover. That's the English idea of what mystery is. The truth is hidden, and you try to figure it out. That's what's the fun of of, of a mystery program or a book or something like that, is that you're trying to work it out also, and there's twists and turns. And finally, maybe you work it out, maybe you don't. But it's hidden, and it's your job to discover who the murderer is discover what the truth is whatever it is but in the greek especially as paul uses it it comes at it from a totally different almost opposite idea it's the idea that something has to be revealed to you because you would never figure it out you would never be able to come up with this it's the idea that is so counterintuitive that it is not something you would naturally understand or discover and you'll never come to it by by the process of reasoning A mystery, biblically here, is an astonishing revelation. It astounds you when you understand it, all right? So this is what Paul's trying to say. And Paul's trying to say this mystery has to do with the gospel. It has to do with this grace that God has for us, the gospel of grace. Your salvation by grace is a great mystery that you didn't figure it out. It had to be revealed to you. And, and so Paul is saying, hey, I want you to remember what we've already talked about in, in chapters 1 and 2, and he's talking about God is bringing all people together by his grace. He's reconciling people to himself and to each other, and it cost him tremendously to do this. And so now I want us to see this idea of mystery of the gospel of grace contrasted with the law. You never hear the law from the Old Testament called a mystery. It's never called that. The Ten Commandments are never called a mystery. The golden rule is never called a mystery. Why? Here's why. Because for most of the world, people kind of believe that if you live a good life, you obey the Ten Commandments, you live by the golden rule, then God will bless you, God will hear your prayers, and God will take you to heaven. But that's not the gospel. Why? Because it makes sense. All religions believe something like that. All religions say it's wrong to murder. All religions say you should be a truthful person. This is something, living by the golden rule, don't lie, don't murder, don't steal. That's common sense. And almost all the religions of the world have this, and most people agree with this. It makes perfect sense not to do bad things and to try to do good things. But the problem is this, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. We know, right? We know we should do the good things. We know we shouldn't do the bad things. But the problem is, we still do the bad things. We still struggle with even inner, the inner inside, you know, all these things that we think and the, and the hateful thoughts that can come to them. And doing good things doesn't change us. It doesn't change us. See, that's not what the gospel is. The gospel is this. The gospel is that God came to earth and triumphed through weakness and suffering. He won by losing. He gained everything by giving it away. He overcame our sin by taking it upon himself. So that you're in Christ, what Luther, Luther called this simul justice um, et peccator, which means this. Simultaneously, you are righteous and a sinner. You are loved, you are accepted, you are pardoned, you are affirmed, you are delighted in as a sinner, and that's a mystery, because that doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense at all. It's counterintuitive, because it's not what you would ordinarily think. It goes against our instincts. The idea that in spite of how bad you are, you can be saved by sheer grace is counterintuitive. I mean... I sometimes think about this. What if I was God? What would my heaven be like? It would be awesome. And how would you get there? <laughs> you better work your tail off because if my heaven's awesome, I'm just not letting any, anybody come wandering in through the front door like they belong there. See, why is that? That makes sense. You've got to work really hard. And so when we look at most of the religions of the world, what do they do? They make sense. You've got to work hard to reach this to reach this exalted state, to however they phrase it or word it, it's all about you working hard to get there. And we have something that is totally counterintuitive. It's sheer grace. So if you live by the gospel, it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. You are accepted by sheer grace. And that does not make sense. And as we begin to understand it, more and more, it becomes more wonderful. It becomes more liberating. The gospel is a wonder. It doesn't make sense. The more you understand it, it astounds you. In First Peter 1, Peter talks about how the angels were astonished. They longed to look at that, and when they saw it, it was astonishing to them. They couldn't believe what God had done. It is so deep, you will never totally understand it. It will continually catch you with new joys and new depths. If you think you understand the gospel of grace, you don't. If you think, I'll never understand the gospel of grace, you're on the right track. Because that's how deep it is, and how wide it is, and how powerful it is. It's counterintuitive. It doesn't come about by natural thinking. So Paul here is telling them, I want you to understand this mystery, this wonder of grace that we have, the wonder of the gospel of grace. The second thing he says is, I want you to see the reason behind the mystery, which is our purpose. And so Paul gives, in a sense, this is his job description. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace, given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery." which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. So Paul is saying, this is my purpose. What does he say? He's saying it's to teach it, to make it plain. He says, "I, I am the least of all God's people. Why would Paul say something like that? I think he's just looking at his past. He was an enemy of Christians. He put Christians in prison. He had a hand in some who were killed. So if anyone was unreachable... It would be the Apostle Paul. It would be Paul, Saul. And yet, Jesus Christ reached even him with this mystery, the gospel of grace. Grace reached to the deepest depths and got Paul. And Paul was very aware of that. He understands that totally. And so he says, this is my purpose. And then he says this, his intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so he's saying in verse 11 there's this great purpose that God has. Kind of runs through this book. God has this great purpose for this earth. Great purpose for us. A great purpose for Paul. But, but, The main thing about this life is that things fall apart. Everything. So there's war. There's violent crime. There's racism. These are things where people who God wants to be together are at each other's throats. Things that should be one are falling apart. Societies are falling apart. Relationships are falling apart. What is disease? What is death? It's your body falling apart. Things unravel. And it's not supposed to go like this. Things were made to stay together, but sin has ruined it and is causing things to fall apart. But God in Christ will someday bring all those things together. Forever, he will bring those things together. And those things will be no more. This is God's purpose. Bringing together where things are falling apart. And if you look at verse 10 here, he says this, he says... He says his intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly realms. He says, how will the world most clearly see God's purpose? How will they see this incredible news of what God is doing? This good news that is counterintuitive. How will they learn of it? And he says, through the church. This is my vehicle for making this happen. This is where my purpose lies. This is what we're a part of. We're a part of the church. This is what we are to be doing, just like Paul was doing it. This community of believers. And Paul has been talking about this already. He's been talking about how God brought down the division between Jew and Gentile, a division that would not come down otherwise. Apart from Jesus Christ, Paul says that the division between Jew and Gentile is not going to come down. And it's still going on. We see this in the Middle East today. Apart from Jesus Christ, it will not be healed. He says the division between slave and free has been destroyed by the gospel. Oppression through power. Using power to make people do things. He says that's not God's way. That's not what God has. The division between male and female, oppression by gender, God says has been destroyed in Jesus Christ. The gospel destroys these divisions. Everything that falls apart will be healed. The church is to be a new way of living, not just for the world to see, but for rulers and authorities, even in heavenly places, even angels and demons he's talking about here. They will look and they will be amazed at what God's doing. Now, I know at this point, because I think this myself, Sometimes people object. I guess I don't say, I shouldn't say I think this myself, but I see it a lot. People will say, listen, Bob, I can be a good Christian, I don't have to go to church. I will tell you this, Paul would have no idea what you're talking about if you said that. Paul would not even begin to understand what you're talking about. Say, "I, I can be a good Christian and not have to go to church. Because the church is it. This is his purpose. This is his plan. This is what he's working through. He doesn't have a plan B. The church is indispensable. Now, Paul understands, just like we understand, the church is not perfect. We see that all the time. Paul saw it all the time. He wrote letters about it. The letter to the Colossians, the letter to the Corinthians. He's writing letters to churches that are troubled and are struggling because he understands this is what the church is. It's people. It's people who struggle, people like you, people like me. We're not perfect people. But we're hopefully united by one thing, faith in Jesus Christ, the gospel of grace, this mystery that was revealed to us because it is not intuitive, it is counterintuitive. And so he says, the manifold wisdom of God, this multicolored, brilliant wisdom of God is to work through the church. Now, if I'm honest, I'm thinking, that's not that brilliant, God. Because I'm a part of the church, and I see how much I struggle, and you're a part of the church, and you see how much you struggle. Is this really the best way to work? And God says, yes. Yes. And why do I struggle with that? Because I look at it humanly. I'm thinking intuitively. I'm thinking we need better advertisement programs. We need to do other things better. We need to do this better. We need to do that better. We need to get rid of some people. We need to clean some things up. And what is that? That's intuitive. That's how it should work. And God says, I don't work that way. I work counterintuitively. And so I I do things different. And so we have this idea. We have have God's, God's mystery, the gospel of grace. We have the reason behind the mystery. This is our purpose. And we have the reason for this rabbit trail dealing with suffering. Paul now is going to say something about suffering, about his suffering, but he's going to clue it in also with their suffering. And this is important for us. Why does he break off his thought and and insert this? Verse 1, he says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. And then it's like, whoa, rabbit. He says, I need to say this. And then look how he ends it in verse 13. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. He says, look, don't be discouraged about the suffering that you see, the suffering that you see in me, but also the suffering that we see all the time. Now, Paul is writing from prison. It's very interesting here that he says, I, Paul, the prisoner of Rome. No, he doesn't say that. He says, the prisoner of Christ Jesus For the sake of you, Gentiles, for your sake, I am in prison. He's saying, I am going through this, and there is a higher purpose. It's a higher purpose than my comfort. It's a higher purpose than my life. Because he could lose his life now. They don't know how this is going to turn out. Now, this is something I do think. Paul has just described in chapters 1 and 2 this incredible salvation accomplished through Christ that we have. And he talks about this mystery, this gospel of grace. And I think people were thinking, and I think he anticipates this, if this gospel of grace is so great, why are you suffering, Paul? If your God is so great, why are you in prison? Why am I suffering? You can imagine the Colossians saying, Paul, you're suffering. There's there's stuff going on in our lives now. We're suffering. You tell us how great this God is, but we're suffering. And that creates a problem. Well, the key then becomes in verse 13 I ask you, therefore, they're getting discouraged. They see their struggles and it's discouraging. They see Paul, he's in prison. He is this incredible man. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ and yet he's in prison and it becomes a discouragement to them. And, he, and so it hits him. He's, he, that's why he's addressing this thought right now. And I love this because there's nothing, no book in the world that is more realistic about the inevitability of suffering than the word of God. There is no book in the world that is more realistic about the inevitability of a hardness of life than the word of God, and not just for bad people, for good people as well. There's tragedies, there's heartbreak, and the Bible shows that, and Paul engages them over this idea of suffering and struggles and heartbreak and depression. And notice he doesn't say, just suck it up. Get with the program. The Bible engages the reality of suffering and the reason it engages the reality of suffering because suffering can shake your faith. And Paul sees them. He's they're looking at him. And they're wondering, what's the deal? They're wondering, okay, if your God is so great, why can't he take care of you? When you see someone that you love suffering, it is heartrending. It is discouraging. It is depressing. It's a terrible thing. And it's interesting because the word here in verse 13 for discouraged is the word for disheartened, to lose heart. It's like your heart gets ripped out of you. You know, when, when, uh, when, when uh, one of our kids was young um, he had to have a little bit of surgery, right? And he's, and he's very small. And so they, they come and they're talking to us and they're saying, okay, you know, give him to us, which is not, you know, right away. It's like, get, let go of my neck, you know, and handing our kid over. And, and the nurse takes him like this and starts walking away. And all, all I see is that little face looking at me like, what are you doing to me? <laughs> what are you doing to me? <laughs> Why am I with this stranger? Why is this so, it was Horrendous. It was it was heartrending, and it wasn't over anything serious, but that look of betrayal was so difficult. And what he's saying is, Paul's understanding this. He's saying this word for disheartened means you, you you're having this sense of just losing your heart. You're getting bitter. You get numb. Paul says, No, don't do that. Don't get discouraged. He's saying, I want you to understand. I understand that life is hard and that we need help in this, and, and, and this, little, this little rabbit trail is Paul saying, I want to help you with this. I want you to see something that's going on here. I want you to see there is this mystery that has been revealed, this gospel of grace that supersedes everything. There is a reason behind the mystery. There is a purpose, the purpose of God for you, each one of you individually, for us as a part of the church As a part of this corporate body, there's a reason and a purpose for us on this earth. We're not just here to suck up resources and breathe air and accumulate things and then die and leave them for someone. That's not our purpose. And so he's saying there's this gospel of grace, there's this purpose, there's this meaning. And he said, and he's telling him it can be found even when you're in suffering, It can be found, especially at times, in suffering. So I want to give you three practical applications. Sign from God right there. Some of you just woke up. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He knows. (laughs) He knows. All right, some practical applications. Number one, suffering is not worthless. Now, Paul's talking to people who are hurting, He's talking to people, they're struggling, they're wrestling with this, even doubting. He uses a word that implies that. They can't understand why this man who has such eloquence, such power, such, such authority could be in prison and possibly going to lose his life. These are times of persecution, so there's a struggle there. There's just also the normal tragedies and heartbreaks of life. And all this theology that he's laying out, all these deep truths he's laying out, are for a reason. He says his intent was that now, through the church, the manifest wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and the authorities. I'm sorry, I just put the wrong, that's my wrong verse. Uh, I want you to look at verse 12 on your sheets. In Him and through Him, uh, that we may in Him we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. He says, look, I want you to see something. Let's draw some conclusions here. First of all, suffering is not worthless. Suffering is not worthless. I, I, uh, this is a story, and, and I, I remember it because it kind of unfolded. I'm, I'm from the northern Virginia area, and um, many years ago, a, a young lady named Johnny Erickson, um, she is, was from Baltimore, and she was... Uh, Diving off of a little dock, and it was low tide. And she broke her neck. She was 16, 17 years old. And she broke her neck, and she was paralyzed from the neck down. And it was uh, kind of, it made nasty, you know, news and all this kind of stuff. And and um, in, in she wrote a book about it. And she's still alive. It's an amazing story if you ever want to look that up. She wrote a, a, a book about it. She was at the Baltimore Rehabilitation Center, And they wheeled in next to her a 16-year-old girl uh, named Denise Walters. And Denise was a 17-year-old who one day, she was just going down the steps and her legs gave out and she fell. Uh, After she laid there for a minute, she got up and she kind of walked. Uh, It was at school. And then she went home and said, man, I feel so tired. So she took a nap. When she woke up, she was paralyzed from the waist down. And so they rushed her to the hospital and they're doing these tests. And, and uh, within a week, she was paralyzed from the neck down. And uh, what happened was she had this uh, form of multiple sclerosis that, uh, that progresses incredibly f- rapidly, incredibly fast, so that uh, after a few weeks, uh, she could only talk. She'd lost her vision, and, uh, and then after about another month or two, she finally died. She was in the room, same room as Johnny Erickson tar, Tata, Johnny Erickson, who was paralyzed from the neck down. Well, for a while, they could talk some, but, but Denise's speech got more and more mumbled, more and more mumbling and just garbled because she was losing control. And, 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 and Johnny writes about this, and she was saying, at first, friends from high school came and visited her, people came to visit her. She says, after a week or two, the visits just petered out, and it was just her mom every day she 'd come and she'd play her some music and she 'd read some of the bible to her and uh because denise uh, was a christian and 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 Johnny was also and so Johnny, Denise died and and, and Johnny is working through all of this and finally with her life and she finally came after many, after a couple years, it was very difficult. She came to conclusions. she realized, and and I'm reading from her book, she realized there was a purpose for suffering sometimes. Sometimes it is through suffering that we're able to change. Sometimes it is only through suffering that we become more humble and see things in life the way we would not see them unless we endured hardship. And also she began to see that in suffering you can testify to others of God's greatness. The way you engage difficulty or evil or pain can become a testimony to others. But she struggled, and she writes this in her book, she struggled with Denise. She was saying, how could she grow? What testimony did she have to others it took her speech. I mean, nobody knew. She, she, she spent over a month of, of just being blind, and the only thing is they were, she could still hear, so she'd hear her mother. And she said one time she came to Ephesians 3.10. His intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly realms. And she said, all of a sudden I realized... I, and I alone, was able to witness something that angels and demons were amazed to see. She said, um, she wrote to her mother, uh, Denise's mother, and she said, I am sure the angels and demons stood in amazement as they watched the uncomplaining patience of your daughter. I shared a room with her and I am changed because of it. We are all on display to heavenly realms. We are all on display to more than those around us. Every time you suffer, every time you endure difficulty, small or large, you get to show the world that Jesus Christ is king of your life and not just this world, the unseen world also. And so... That's why I say suffering is not worthless. It is not worthless. Now, if the world is the king of your life, apart from God, well, the world is cold and pitiless and blind. So all suffering has no point and is worthless. There is no reason for suffering. It is hopeless and useless unless somehow God is involved. And Paul is reminding them in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10 there is more watching you. There are more watching you than just the people you see around you. They are watching. So, suffering is not worthless. Secondly, ultimately, suffering cannot hurt you in that ultimate sense. Paul calls himself a prisoner of Christ. And yet in verse 12, he writes about the freedom that he has in prison. He says, I am free to go to God, to in confidence go before God and pour my heart out to him. This is the freedom they can't take from me. Rome, he says, cannot hurt him. He decided that what is really important in life and what he decided was really important in life could not be taken from him. Jesus says, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. We all invest in something that says, this is what I really care about. This is where I get my meaning. This is what's important to me. This is my real hope. This is my identity. We all invest our heart in something. You may have ideas of what you want your life to be and what it means to you. Unfortunately, oftentimes, then reality intervenes. Maybe you couldn't get into the college you were hoping to get into, so you revise your goals. Maybe you couldn't go to college, so you revise your goals. Maybe your job is not exactly what you wanted it to be, so you revise your goals. You don't make as much money as you'd hoped you would, so you revise your goals. Your kids are not what you'd hoped they'd be, so you revise your goals. Health problems intervene and you can't do as much as you'd hoped you could do, you revise your goals. Maybe you're just not as successful as you'd hoped you'd be, so you revise your goals. Maybe a divorce happens, so you revise your goals. Maybe you cannot retire like you thought you'd be able to, so you revise your goals. All these things, and many more, are things we can set our hearts on, and they can get trashed. Each time, it's like a hammer blow to your soul, and they can leave us jaded and cynical. But Paul says, you can set your heart on something that can withstand the hammer blows. Paul's treasure, he says, in Christ I can approach God. I have been reconciled. I am now totally free. I'm in chains in a Roman prison, and I'm going to be going to Caesar, and it's going to be thumbs up or thumbs down. I don't know how it's going to turn out, but I'll tell you this, I'm a free man. He says, there's a freedom that Rome, Rome can't touch. I am confident before God. I am loved by God. I am known by God. I am His friend. I am His child. He says, they can't take that from me. This is where my treasure is and no one can touch it. We have to be careful where our treasure is. Because if we put our treasure in places that people or this world can touch, they're in the wrong place. And we can lose them. You may not see it happen. You may not, it may not happen for you, but It can. And if that's the wrong place to put it. If your treasure is there, if your heart is there, then you're vulnerable. But if it is in Jesus Christ, it cannot be taken. And Paul is saying, this is possible. It doesn't mean you won't weep. It doesn't mean you won't feel pain. But you can have a lasting, abiding confidence in your ability to live for God and to go to him in, in, in freedom. I think for many of us though we can struggle with look I know God loves me I'm glad I'm his child I'm glad I'm his friend but that doesn't seem to help much with what I'm struggling with right now and that's why the New Testament writings keep telling us to go back to the cross go back and think about what Christ did because we can always grasp more of the depths of his love for us when we think about what he's done for us and that's where change occurs third one Suffering brings glory. He says, I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings, which are your glory. Paul here says his suffering is for their glory. Why? Because we see from Jesus how this works. We see how it works when we look at Jesus. Jesus is the only person who earned the freedom and confidence to approach God that Paul has. Paul didn't earn it. It was given to him because Jesus earned it. Jesus lived the perfect life. And what happened? He was shut out so that we could get access. He was bound so that we could be free. He was cast out so that we would have confidence to approach God. And that's the only suffering that ultimately can destroy you, to be cast out of God's presence. And Jesus took that. So now the suffering we deal with in this life has the possibility of actually bringing glory, like, kind of like coal under pressure. Coal becomes a diamond So no suffering is a waste for someone in Christ. It helps us become like Jesus. And this is what Paul is happening. It's happening to Paul. This is what's going on in his life. He's saying there's gonna be this glory on this earth and this glory to come. Ultimately, that can't be robbed from me. The uh, Russian writer um, Dostoevsky wrote The Brothers Karamazov, and the theme was what would, basically the theme is what would life be like without God? And there's this one part where one of the brothers who, who is a priest, he says this. And I want to read it to you. And it's always dangerous to read things because if, if it goes on too long, people lose track. But hang with me on this. This, this man says this, because, and this is what Dostoevsky is trying to get us to think about. He says, this is what is true. I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for. That all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a painful mirage that in the world's finale at the end at the end at the moment of eternal harmony something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all the hearts it will suffice for all the comforting of all the resentments for the atonement for all the crimes that have been committed against human beings and against humanity for all the blood that has been shed that will make it not only possible for us to forgive but also to find meaning in all the acts that has happened, he says, this is what I look forward to. This is a vision of this world that's bound up in Jesus Christ, this vision of future things. He will bring an end to all these things, injustice and bloodshed and violence and pain and suffering, and he will make them right. He's gonna bring all those things back together and put them under one thing, the head, that is Jesus Christ. And he wants to use us to do it. We have this opportunity to do things that will last for eternity. That's an incredible thought when you think about it. Because you think about all the things that we do, all the things that we can accomplish in this world, we can make things and create things and think of things, and they can be great things, but after a while they're gone. I was listening to the listening to the NPR, listening to NPR the other day. And and they're one of their they're, you know, they don't have commercials but they really do, you know how that works. And so they come on and they say, "Would you like your name to last forever?" Right? "Would you like your name to last forever?" Then 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 give us some money and we'll create this eternal thing that we do for you. Whether it's put your name on a building or a sponsor a fund that, you know, all that type of thing. And what are they tapping into there? They're tapping into the fact that we know there's more than just this life. We sense it, we feel it, it's in our hearts, we know it. And they're trying to tap into that, which it's an incredibly, in a sense, biblical thing to do. They want you to figure out a way of knowing that what some things you do will last forever. And God is saying, they're right, but it's not that. Your name on a building will not last forever. Someday that building's coming down. Someday they'll find out what you were really like, and they'll take your name off the building because they'll be mad at you for the way you behaved. You know, they, they, well, they, Something, we see that going on now, right? So your name on a building will not last forever. But your name on a heart of another human being will last forever, because human beings last Forever. Your work to impact someone's life will last forever. When we do Angel Tree, we are one small part of God impacting lives of children to change their hearts and lives for eternity. We're doing something that has eternal value. When we minister at the port facility, we're doing something that can have eternal value. That's the greatest thing a person can do. There's nothing greater. There's nothing more important. There's nothing better for you to do than to be involved in things that will last for eternity. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that these truths can be life-altering. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to open our hearts and allow you to alter our lives. Forgive us for the times where our choices and our attitudes and our actions mock your greatness. And I just pray that we would learn to reflect your glory because we have the privilege of being children of the King. And we call you King not because you bless us, but because you are the King. We call you God, not because of what you do for us, but because you are God. So Lord, teach us to love like you love. Teach us to serve like your son served. Teach us to see this world the way you see this world. And let us show ourselves to be members of the church of Jesus Christ that is changing this world. And Father, you know, right now in this room and people involved with this congregation there are people who are hurting there are people who are struggling there are people who who are having difficulty seeing you in these tough times and so we pray that you would bring grace into their lives you bring healing into their lives your love would break through and manifest itself in their lives to encourage them in these dark times and lord if you want us to be a part of that show us how help us to see that to be a part of your ministry to people And we give you glory, Lord. We give you the glory whether we live or die. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take an offering. And uh, we want you to know that if you're visiting, you're our guest. Please don't feel compelled to give. This is what our regular attenders and our...